Hello, and welcome to Research Software Engineering Stories. This episode of RSE Stories is brought to you from the UK and Europe, in collaboration with the Society of Research Software Engineering in the UK. My name is Peter Schmidt, I'm a Research Software Engineer at the University College of London, and I will be your host for this episode. Today I have the pleasure of welcoming two guests, Neil Chihong and Simon Hetrick. Neil and Simon are Director and Deputy Director, respectively, of the Software Sustainability Institute. In addition, Neil is a Senior Research Fellow at the Edinburgh Parallel Computing Centre, or EPCC, and Simon co-directs the Research Software Group of Southampton University. Neil and Simon, hello and welcome to RSE Stories. It'll be great if you could give us an overview of your background and uh, why don't we start with you, Neil? Hi, Peter. So my background is in computational physics. I started off doing an undergraduate master's degree at the University of Edinburgh there, and that involved different types of simulation work, eventually working on a project which involved simulation of high energy physics. When I was doing my degree, I realized that I had become more interested in the software work than the physics itself. And so I moved on to work in a technology transfer center, again, based at the University of Edinburgh, where I was working a lot with different machine vision projects and doing image processing with companies as diverse as uh, doing mushroom processing, trying to identify the the different orientations of mushrooms going along a conveyor belt um, to working with people who were trying to identify things in different sorts of medical images. So all of that led me on to having a desire to work more in larger open source projects that were developing scientific software and research software. And at the time, there was a program called the eScience program in the UK. This was in the 2000s. And it was funding a lot of work that brought together people from industry, people from computer science, and people from different domain sciences to work on projects that, that basically provided functionality for different types of applications. So it might be working on things like the engineering of jet engines or cancer treatment or the projects that I ended up working on, which were mostly around bringing together lots of different data sources and databases. So in this period, I was working on technology that involved trying to understand how we worked with databases that were distributed, um, bringing them together uh, in ways that we could run queries on them without necessarily moving all of the data to one place. We called it virtual data warehousing. But I think the thing that I most understood from doing this work was how much community engagement and community development was important in running open source projects. And that's where it's led me to just now as the founding director and principal investigator of the Software Sustainability Institute is trying to ensure that all of the people who are developing research software in the UK today have the benefit of sharing the practices that I learned and the practices I'm still learning from the community about how we develop research software. Oh, that's great, Neil. Thank you very much. Simon, could you give us a little bit of your background? So like Neil, I started off as an undergraduate physicist. I um, then did a PhD in laser physics. So and that was, that was proper experimental physics. You know, I was making things with my hands and uh, it's where I 
where I first sort of developed my idea that it's not proper research unless you can kill yourself whilst doing it. At the end of that, I was getting a bit bored of spending lots of time on my own in a sort of pitch black laser laboratory. So um, I wanted to move. And, you know, I've always been interested in this, knowing a little about a lot of different things in science. So uh, that attracted me into patent law. So I worked as a patent attorney for a few years. I guess I got bored of spending sort of any time at all with lawyers and uh, decided I wanted to move back into academia. And I still wanted to do that thing. I wanted not to focus on one particular domain, but to, to work across domains. I was thinking about going into science communication and an opportunity came up in an organization called OMI UK, which dealt with grid software at the time. And that was the organization that Neil was the director of. I joined and was just did a comm drill for a few years. That sort of naturally led to the um, foundation of the Software Sustainability Institute. Well, ostensibly, I was doing comms when I first started at the Institute, but I was actually doing lots of other things, running projects, doing management of various things. 2013, I got the deputy director position and uh, was given the lead for the work that we do in policy. So that was go out, make the world a better place for all of the researchers that use um, software. And you know, one of the big things at that time was we didn't know how many researchers used software. And that was one of the things we found out in the policy team back in 2014. Uh, that policy work led directly to starting to think about the kind of communities, the new communities that were being overlooked in academia and the ones that we needed. And, and that led to the foundation of the Research Software Engineering Campaign. Talking about the Software Sustainability Institute, could you describe what the Institute actually does and how it fits in with the world of research software engineering in general? The Institute's probably best summed up by its motto, which is better software, better research. It exists to improve research software practice in the UK and also worldwide. This involves both helping researchers who are using software understand things like what the limitations of software are, how to ensure that they're choosing the right software, and how to make sure that they are engaging with other people who are working on similar things and using the same software as them. But also, and this is where it fits in very much with research software engineering, helping researchers and research software engineers to develop the best software possible to help enable research. The Institute is involved in lots of different initiatives that can that can help researchers and research software engineers develop software. It started off um, when we 10 years ago set up the Institute. Um, it started with a lot of consultancy work, working with individual groups to transfer skills, help them with things such as setting up revision control and testing frameworks, helping to optimize their codes and helping to understand the best way of running projects. But as the Institute has developed and grown, we've realized that the best way of spreading practice is to not just be doing it all yourself, but helping other people to spread the same message, the same experiences and skills. Latterly, a lot of the work that the Institute does is around community engagement, helping communities of practice to understand the best way of supporting research software engineering themselves, and doing training, in particular in conjunction and collaboration with the carpentries who provide training on computational skills and data skills for researchers, to establish a large network of instructors who can help deliver training that is really kind of addressing the key challenges that you face as a researcher today trying to do modern research. Because I think, as Simon has mentioned in his introduction about the policy work he's done, 
one of the things that we've discovered at the Institute is how much modern research relies on software and indeed how much researchers need to develop software in their own daily lives. That could be either as small scripts to help with their analysis or larger applications and libraries that they can share with collaborators. As an institute, we intersect with the world of research software engineering in a number of ways, as well as being the people who helped, helped bring about research software engineering into the world. And certainly as a, as a term, we've also been making sure that we're the kind of backbone organization behind the research software engineering movement, trying to ensure that people hear about it, advocate for it, and share those practices that will help us all to achieve better software and better research. Thank you very much. Simon, do you want to add anything to it? So obviously there's a very direct connection between the Software Sustainability Institute and the Research Software Engineering campaign. But I think the strongest connection is the fact that we we were given this really, really wide remit, you know, go out and make the world a better place for people who use software in, in research. Um, and I have to say that was quite a brave thing for the Engineering and Physical Sciences Research Council to do because they said, go and work with everybody, not just people who, who we fund. But the problem was there was, I can't remember, about eight of us, I think, when we first started, and we were you know, given this remit of 210,000 researchers to help. So we had to think of things that were incredibly scalable. The, I, the concept of research software engineer came from one of our workshops, the collaborations workshop in 2012. And, and it was the first time this role, which had existed for decades, had really got a name that people could start getting behind. There'd been lots of different names for it in, in the past, but you know, we felt that this, this one really sort of got to the core of what that role was all about. And then when we set up the policy team, we were looking for something that we could, something we could do with very limited resources that would have an effect across all different disciplines. And then the research software engineering idea just was so, such an obvious thing to do because, you know, I knew so many people who were doing that role and being overlooked. They were obviously going to turn into a community that would fight for recognition. So all we needed to do was just coalesce it into an organization. And that was, that was our role really as the Institute. We ran the first workshops to get um, that concept sort of embedded into the research community. We did lots of publicity to try and get it out there. We talked to all of our contacts at the funders and at universities so that people would start to accept this new role. And then everything else has been done by the community and the, the incredibly rapid rise of research software engineering, not just here in the UK, but but all around the world. Just yesterday, um, Belgium joined us and it's got its own research software engineering association. It's the ninth country now. Yeah, we sort of kind of made the conditions right for research software engineering to start, but then since then, it's just been run by the community. So what I take away from this, Simon and Neil, is that Software Sustainability Institute is really the backbone of research software engineering, which after all, as you mentioned several times, is a relatively new role. So training, providing guidelines, providing advice is one of the key roles that you identified. So in the current climate with us being in lockdown, how has this changed where you're still able to provide guidelines, trainings, and workshops. So, I mean, lockdown has changed everything for everybody, and it's happened to everybody at the same time. So it's, it's a really interesting time to try and run large communities across, you know, a country, never mind a number of countries. Certainly, as, as the Institute, you know, we're still running our workshops um, and doing them all virtually. It requires a lot more organization and a lot more sort of technical wizardry and and input behind the scenes. 
the RSE community has been catching up with with the new world that we're in. Um, so the big thing that we run every year, the RSE conference, it, it just can't go ahead. Like 18 different countries coming to this. It's not going to happen at this time. So, so what we're trying to do is we're investing into other things that would be useful. So there's, I'm not sure I'm allowed to announce exactly what it is, but there is a new um, scheme coming up where we're going to be trying to do something like conference online, but spreading it over a long, a large amount of time. So I, I think I'm allowed to say at least that much, but keep an eye on the Society of RSE and the Software Sustainability Institute, Institute Twitter accounts for news about that. The, all of the things that are happening behind the scenes are sort of, they're really the necessary, but far from exciting meetings and all that sort of stuff. That's all going ahead quite well, um, just virtually. I think we're, we're in a very lucky situation that, that anybody who works in software is kind of quite suitable to, to working from home. So that's going rather well. I think one of the other things that um, COVID-19 pandemic has really highlighted is that different groups are affected by it in different ways. So uh, as Simon says, when we've been running events, um, we've had to shift them to be virtual events, online events. Uh, and I think what that's taught us is that um, as well as the fact that we can do our work as RSEs online very effectively, we're having to juggle on a number of other things that maybe highlight some of the the differences in the way that we can do our jobs. So for instance, uh, the speed of your broadband connection at home has suddenly become very important, as has the ability to to focus. And I think that's something that a lot of us have been losing the ability to do as we've been in lockdown. Research software engineering is often uh, a job where you need to be able to dedicate time to a problem. And if you're getting interrupted, it's much harder to do that role. And I think we, we're learning different ways of of helping RSEs to get around that, whether that is uh, different types of meeting practices or different ways of supporting them joining events and meetings. I, I think the other thing that I've noticed when we've been in lockdown, which I, I, I don't think I would have known without this crisis happening, is really around how much you benefit from sharing and collaboration. And we've been seeing some really excellent things happening um, in the research software engineering community where groups that had not previously collaborated before have come together through different initiatives. Uh, there's the RAMP initiative that's being run by the Royal Society as, as one example to work openly with different groups to help support things like modeling, um, understanding transmission rates, understanding how we might improve the way that we um, look for different vaccines and cures. So actually coming together in adversity has been a really key part of, I think, what the research software engineer community have, have done during this crisis. And that's been really great to see. I think it's a very nice segue into my next question or the follow-up, really, because, yes, there is, of course, a way in which the way we work individually as research software engineers has changed, but also the way that we are being viewed. And you mentioned already the modelling, and in fact, the last interview I did with Richard Fitzjohn from Imperial College was about modelling diseases, infectious diseases, such as coronavirus. And some of the code actually found its way into the public eye. And do you think that this has changed the way that research software engineers are being viewed by researchers, research institutions, and the public? And if it has changed, what do you think it has changed? Has it changed for the better? Has it changed in the sense that people are more aware of it? 
I think, I think there's no real evidence to show that the researchers themselves are starting to see software or, or research software engineers any differently. I think it's more based on our kind of hopes and aspirations based on some of the scrutiny and the rightful scrutiny of code that's happening at the moment and some of the arguments about whether the importance of software and the fact that really large, incredibly important uh, economic decisions have been made on the back of like some of the modeling software. So what I would hope would happen would be that policymakers and researchers see how important software is. This one aspect of software has been thrust into the limelight and that will make them think, well, actually, a lot of the, the research that I produce is based on software. So this is the right time for me to start worrying about the, the reliability and reproducibility and the transparency and openness of my software. And because I don't know as much about these subjects as, say, a research software engineer would, it's time to get some advice from a research software engineer or start to start to employ one either directly or through an RSE group. This, these sort of things rarely happen in the sort of perfect world that you want. What could happen is just we see an awful lot of flurry and a lot of criticism of software, and then people just forget straight away. I hope that won't happen, but you know, researchers have many other things to worry about. And trying to trust something like software, which sometimes can feel like a peripheral concern, can be very difficult. But I think this is our best chance yet for really pushing software and the importance of software up the agenda. And I really hope that that will hit home. Neil, what, what is your take on this? It's noticeable that every time that I get asked to comment in the public press, it's always when there's been some sort of crisis of confidence in research software, whether it's the climate gate or the the kind of like austerity spreadsheets or now the COVID-19 modeling code. I think my experience has been that this spotlight has been both good and bad for research software and research software engineering. Obviously, the importance of research software has been highlighted and and perhaps recognized more often, but it's come with that misunderstanding about the way that research software is developed and also perhaps the part that research software engineers play in that process. I, I agree. Um, Simon has mentioned that Actually, the highlight has been on the software, not on the research software engineers. I think my worry, is, as Simon has also alluded to, is there's a chance that the role of the research software engineer is forgotten in this spotlight on research software. And part of that is really just arguing amongst the research community. I think we all have a lot of opinions. It's good that we engage in this debate, but often we forget that when we do this in the public eye, that people will pick up on just one or two opinions and messages. And the fact that, uh, in particular, we've had a lot of commentary from the IT industry, um, which is extremely well-meaning and extremely helpful, uh, but also not necessarily recognizing the, the way that co-creation of research software and that interaction between researchers and research software engineers is important to development of different models, different data sets. That all means that we risk damaging a lot of the work that we've done, uh, particularly around getting people to share their code and be more open and collaborative. All of these things have been um, really, really useful in terms of trying to help address different research challenges during the COVID-19 pandemic. And if we go to a situation afterwards where researchers are afraid of sharing their code because of fear of criticism, however well-meaning, we might set back the research software engineering, 
hearing movement. So I think it's important that we highlight the successes and also highlight the the role that research software engineers have ensuring that the quality and reliability of research software is improved in ways that really do involve working directly with researchers rather than just commenting from afar. I think there's there's an interesting thing that happened there, and this was a smaller segment of the criticism of, of especially the Imperial Code, and that was people said, oh, well, look, researchers obviously don't have the skills to develop you know, nice, reliable code, so what we should do is we'll take it out of industry and we'll put all software development into industry. And I mean, that was a small segment of the, the criticism, but it kind of, it did sort of highlight this idea that people kind of go, all right, so that the software isn't working, so let's just go to the one model that we know that works, which is industry, industrial software engineering, rather than saying, okay, so how do we change academia so that we can start to get these software engineering skills in? Because like Neil was saying, researchers don't come up with the specification of the, for every single element of their software that they, they require and then hand it over to somebody to develop that. It's much more uh, collaborative. It's much more iterative. You know, the, you try something out and it works, or it, it, sometimes it doesn't work, or sometimes it works in a completely different way than you thought it would. So you need to keep need to follow that trail. You know, re- that's the way that research works. From a point of opportunity, so where do you see the research software engineering role evolve in that respect? So how could it bridge that? How could it actually bring the pieces together that ensure that software that is being used in research is actually following best practices and guidelines? I mean, I think that's just the direct application of research software engineering. I mean, that's what research software engineers do. So they, mm. they collaborate with researchers. They uh, understand the, the work that they need done, but they are also suggesting things that could be done to, to improve the research or to expand its scope or, or its direction. And then they bring the software engineering practices in. Some of them, sometimes there's a reticence on the researcher's side because they can't see the direct benefit of some of the practices and it seems like you know, time sink. But then the role of the research software engineer is to, to explain why these software engineering practices will help, maybe not directly, but very much so in the future. Um, so I think the research software engineer is, is absolutely that bridge between those, those domains of software engineering and research. There's also an interesting question about the role of research software engineers bringing together researchers from different disciplines, because research often doesn't happen in isolation. How do you see that evolving? I think one of the things that I've discovered from working on quite a few interdisciplinary projects is that the diversity of the team that's working on the research really matters. One of the things that's been really great seeing in the last few years is that with the introduction of research software engineers into a research project, we're starting to see that diversity and broadening of roles that allow different perspectives to be to be identified and to be made as part of a broader team. And I think in particular, research software engineers have a role that they can play in terms of helping to act as both bridges between different disciplines um, and also as interpreters, partly because the role of the research software engineer in the project is often the the one of the integrator. 
the person that needs to kind of facilitate the understanding of the research and the requirements for the research across the different people involved uh, and understand how to bring this all together. So I, I think the thing that we'll see happening with research software engineers working on these interdisciplinary projects is an evolving role. It's not just going to be about the software development and the design and architecture of the software. I think a key way in which the role of an RSE on these projects, these interdisciplinary projects will evolve is um, that they'll need to become more of a product manager as well as being the, the person involved in the software development and the technical design architecture. And um, this is something that uh, I've done on previous projects, and it does require a slightly different skill set, being able to engage and support the different researchers who are um, driving forward the functionality, um, but also understanding the broader community of users and collaborators and responding to feedback, criticism, and even uh, feature requests and bug reports. So the role of um, an RSC in bridging um, interdisciplinary work will really be acting as an interpreter um, between different disciplines and different researchers, and sometimes also acting as a um, an arbitrator to make sure that projects are delivering software that's usable by other collaborators. The other thing, and and this is responding in part to one of your earlier questions, Peter, is I think another way in which RSE groups will evolve is that they will become more and more, more and more involved in the delivery of training to researchers. I've often said that in response to people who challenge me and say, you shouldn't be trying to turn all researchers into software engineers, that's not my aim. Uh, my aim is, is more like trying to make sure that all researchers under, understand enough about how to develop software that they can go and talk to a research software engineer and be able to communicate effectively with them. I think RSEs will need to, to do the work on the other side as well by ensuring that training is provided so that the researchers that they might work with in the future have that language and have that understanding of some of the key concepts so that they can work together uh, and work across interdisciplinary teams. Well, thank you very much, Neil, for the comprehensive answers. Simon, what do you think about that? Neil's point about not turning all researchers into research software engineers and, and the RSEs actually being the ones who give back the skills is, is the really important thing here. That, that ultimately, people like Neil and I are incredibly lucky to work in an organisation that is hugely interdisciplinary. You know, we have obviously have our domain knowledge, but then we get to work with people who have spent their entire lives working on some subject that you know you know nothing about, and then you get to drop into a project with them and learn all this cool stuff that you didn't even didn't even know existed. You know, it's it's really like a, a beautiful place to work like that. And and I think it's one of the biggest benefits of working across domains is just that you understand the breadth of of human knowledge and, and you get to tap into you know, just tiny little parts of it. But you see, we're, we're in a minority of these groups that work across, across domains, but the other and you know, considerably larger group that does this sort of interdisciplinary work is research software engineers, because you know, ultimately around about 70% of research is reliant on software. So lots of, of researchers from all different domains have to tap into research software engineers. So these, so these, these RSEs get to, to work across these domains and they pick up ways of working from everybody. 
And so the RSEs are really useful sort of cross-pollinators, taking out the best ideas from one domain off to another one because they are fortunate enough to work across across disciplines. So I think they're they're absolutely vital to interdisciplinarity. Thank you very much. I uh, I think we've had quite good answers from both of you in regard with regards to opportunities, how the research software engineer and the role of the research software engineer might evolve in future following the COVID-19 crisis, but not necessarily only because of that. But talking about the coronavirus outbreak and the lockdown, the risk that some universities face is a reduction, for instance, in funding, funding of research. Would you see that as a risk for research software engineers in future? And how would you think we could mitigate that? It's an interesting problem, isn't it? Whenever the um, purse strings get tightened, the, the, the thing that you worry about is that the, the, the most recent new groups, the most recent new ideas, the ones that haven't got decades of funding behind them, the ones that don't have their fingers into senior management, will be the first ones to go. Anecdotally, at least, I am seeing that there are some difficulties with um, universities who are you know, under extreme pressure to cut costs will be thinking about just focusing on what they've seen as core business. And if they've been in universities for 50-odd years, then research software engineering might not fall directly in their sights. However, I think, you know, times of crises like this are time to sort of do a bit of adjustment. I think it's, it's, it's time to refocus on what's important. And you can imagine that although they're, they're tightening belts, they are also wanting to focus on things that are going to give you your biggest bang for your buck, the most cost-effective ways of working. And it's not a cost effective for a researcher to, to start hiring PhD students and postdocs to learn software engineering from scratch and hopefully get to a point where they're good enough at it before they leave the university and move on to another university to produce something, some software for them. So it's really, you know, I'd hope it might be an opportunity for some sort of Keynesian focus and investment in research software engineering to bring the overall costs of running a university down. I sincerely hope that will happen. What about you, Neil? What is your opinion on that? It's going to be a real challenge as universities' discretionary funds dry up. Uh, I think initiatives like the the recently uh, announced new RSE fellowship or COL will help. I think the problem is that if universities aren't willing to support re uh, research software engineering groups, there's going to be a divide between the institutions who have research software engineering groups and those who don't. And this will have a knock-on effect that is broader than just the risk for research software engineers in the future in this post-pandemic um, tightening of belts. It's going to have an impact on the researchers that they, that they work with as well, because it's going to impact on activities such as training. It's going to impact on the ability of universities to effectively do things to do with research software and research data management. And as Simon has said, Because so much of uh, research depends on software, the thing that this will lead to is universities being unable to support the basic research that they are doing themselves. And that, that would be a really big issue, particularly for, for the universities who maybe previously have had very small research software engineering groups, where all of a sudden, if these dry up, um, what we'll end up with is, is researchers who are in a a second tier of universities. And given all of the work that's been done so far to, to encourage universities to invest in um, research software engineering groups, I think that would be a, a devastating um, circumstance. 
really, I think the, the key thing that we've got to be doing is persuading researchers themselves to be advocating for why um, investment by universities in research software engineering isn't something which is a sunk cost. It's something which is an investment to enable them to be more fruitful in their research. So uh, thanks very much for this summary. I would like to end uh, the questions for this podcast. We're coming to the end of the show now um, with a question. So I joined UCL quite recently from the private sector. So if I were to start a career in software engineering, in research software engineering, what pieces of advice would you give me? Um, so I think the first thing would be to make sure that you're you're tied into the community because the, the absolute defining strength of the research software engineering campaign and community has been just the, the people that are within it. It's a really friendly, welcoming, helpful, collaborative, like wonderful society. So there's various ways you can do that. You know, you can um, join up to Slack, you can get in touch with an RSC or an RSC lead because most of them will be more than happy to give you some time and tell you about the the ups and downs of the RSC um, profession. But ultimately, you know, I, I'll have to push this one, I'm afraid. You, you should also join the Society of Research Software Engineering or if you're in a different country, your local RSC association because it's really at that stage, you're starting to add to the weight of numbers that makes life better for all RSCs. And if you want a career in research software engineering, you need to do that. Thank you very much, Simon. Neil? I would also endorse joining the Society of Research Software Engineering, being part of that larger community and learning from uh, your peers. But I, I think I'd also say um, that one of the best things you can do to to uh, start a career in research software engineering is to find out about different open source projects in the area that you've come from or want to work in and understand how they work and contribute back to them. Because I think in a lot of cases, the best way of showing that you can be a good research software engineer is showing that you understand the way that research software is being developed and in particular how successful research software is being developed. And there are so many great projects if you're still a student, you might want to look at things like Google Summer of Code, where a lot of research software projects advertise for people to do internships. Um, but the brilliant thing about open source is that anyone can contribute at any time. There are no barriers apart from your ability to find some time to do it. So that's, that's my big tip is find a project that excites you and do something with it. Okay, thank you very much, Simon and Neil. We're now coming to the end of the podcast, and there are two questions that Vanessa and I like to ask at the end of each session, and I hope you're up for it. Yeah, yes. So let's imagine a point far ahead into the future, Neil and Simon. If you were to look back to your professional life, what would a successful career as research software engineer look to you? So for me, I, I think I've actually, uh, I don't need to look far ahead into the future. I think I can just look at the present and see what's uh, see what's happened in my career. And the thing for me is seeing how much the community has changed and the practices have changed. So I, I think I'm having a successful career as a research software engineer because I mentioned at the start of this podcast that I started off as a computational physicist working on software for high energy physics experiments. Uh, and recently I got invited back to speak at one of the conferences in this area. And it was amazing to see how much has changed. And in particular, how much has changed in terms of recognition for 
the role of the software developers in these big experiments and how much of physics and high energy physics in particular can't be done without effectively research software engineers. The other thing that's that's really good is um, I think in terms of my career as a research software engineer, I've managed to create applications that have been used by scientists and researchers across the world. And that's the reason why I got into this job is to see my work being used to further knowledge and further research. And I've been able to do that. So I'm, I'm pretty happy with where I am. If I was to look back on my career with research software engineering, I think I think I will have come to a success and I'll be happy and I'll take early retirement, whatever is necessary. Um, when I first hear that somebody has gotten into an argument, one of those mind-numbing, long-winded arguments with university HR, where HR has been saying, no, 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 you're not a researcher, you're a research software engineer, look at what you're doing. And they're trying to force a researcher onto a research software engineering career path against their will, rather than what happens currently, which is forcing RSEs onto researcher career paths. I think you know, once we've got to that point where people are having tedious meetings with HR trying to explain exactly what they're doing, and HR is sticking up for our research software engineers, then I think we've succeeded. Thank you, Simon. The last question has nothing to do with software engineering, or maybe it does. Because I'd like to know, and the listeners, I'm sure, like to know as well, what do you like to do when you're not programming, leading the institute, helping research, leading teams, etc.? I've had a very varied and, um, I'm going to say, complementary career path, which involves a lot of work in the creative arts as well. So I'm a writer and a playwright, and I work a lot with community cinemas and film festivals to try and improve access to film and cinema. And I think it's amazing how much I've learned there that transfers to my day job. One of the things that I've realized uh, from working in many different roles and many different types of organizations is how much each job has in common. Um, so learning how to run events is pretty much the same in, in anything. And learning how to, how to basically connect and talk with people is the same, whether they are working in the film industry or working in academia. I, what do I like to do when I'm not doing research software engineering related things? I, I like to do the same thing in terms of community building in other areas as well. I, I don't get a huge amount of free time. I've got a lot of family things to, to deal with. But um, the things that I do to try and relax are basically I, I really like to cook. You know, I, I, brought, I was brought up, uh, my mother's a chef, so I spent, you know, I've been holding a wooden spoon since I was old enough to be sort of slave labor in the kitchen. Um, but I've always found that really relaxing, going home, taking some time uh, and uh, you know, cooking meals for my family and friends. But and aside from that, I, I have a list of pastimes that I no longer get time for. I used to love to go fishing, uh, go down to the beach and spend a couple of hours down there staring into the water and clearing my brain. But I, I, unfortunately, I don't do that nearly enough nowadays. Well, thank you very much, Simon and Neil. Uh, I certainly can relate to the community building and I can relate to the cooking and maybe you need to share some recipes, Simon. We have it on the Software Sustainability Institute Slack. We have a recipes channel. Well, there you go. You know, that just, that's, that's all I need. Um, well, thank you so much, Neil and Simon, for coming to the show today. It was such a great pleasure talking to you. It was very exciting. And I think we covered a lot of exciting areas. Thank you, Peter. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening. We hope you enjoyed the show and we would like to see you again in future. If you like this episode... It'll be great if you could leave a review wherever you download your podcast from. And with that, goodbye.